We have this week and next uh, on our series from Jonah that we started the year off with, uh, with multiple, multiple themes of Jonah that we've mentioned. We've looked at a few. And um, our series kind of is made when God calls you to a city, what should you learn? What can we learn from Jonah when God calls you to reach a city, which is where we are as a church with a five-year vision that we just inaugurated. We're going to be bringing some clarity to that over the next couple of months of where we feel like the Lord wants to use us in our community, in our city. And Lord called Jonah to go reach um, the Ninevites, the Assyrian culture. Um, and he was uh, very, very resistant. But some of the themes we've looked at so far, you may remember, was just the first week, the doctrine of sin, that we learned a lot about what is the doctrine of sin, that there's not good people and bad people, just bad people who need grace. Uh, so the Ninevites weren't better or worse than Jonah was just as in need. And God took a preacher, by the way, to teach us these lessons. And then secondly, we looked at just, we held up just the compassion of God, his compassion towards the Ninevites, his compassion toward a uh, a, a bigot, uh, Jonah, who was also a pa- who, who was in process, and we saw his compassion being with him in process. Last week we looked at God's compassion in storms that He brings to us in life, and uh, you may remember that we said last week we would follow up this week in looking at the, the very central theme of the Book of Jonah, uh, that of racism and nationalism, and uh, appropriate. We wanted to time that out with MLK's birthday being this uh, past week, and so um, we want to. Uh, be mindful of that and very thankful for MLK, who was someone who argued for equality from the, from the truth of people who were made in the image of God, all people, from a biblical view. And uh, he did that even after the civil rights movement, by the way, began to work for poverty and um, uh, equality and poverty for all people who were image bearers. So uh, from that, we want to emphasize for a minute here um, the idea of racism and um, when God calls you to reach a city, then you do have to face your racism. And that's what uh, is a very important thing that God is doing to Jonah. And, um, and let me say this. He's always calling his people to reach their city. And therefore, he's always calling his people to address the sins of their heart. And racism is one he's always calling us to address. All right? And... Um, and uh, I think it's very timely. You may remember we actually had a conference where we brought in some speakers in 2017, Race and the Gospel and our cultural engagement a few years ago. And I think this is very timely that the Lord brings this through our exposition of the scriptures uh, to bring this back. Because um, in a sense, this particular for the church and its process, uh, processing the idea of what the culture is telling us and teaches us, even drawing attention to that the, our, our issues of racism, um, it seems it's a time where politics and uh, buzzwords and wokeness and hot buttons and all the things that are going on have, in my opinion, have distracted us as the church in some level to not let us all hear from God and make sure that we're addressing racism. Despite all the, the, um, um, the uh, bomb, but what, would, what would be the word, just the, 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 the uh, sensitivity and the, um, I'm looking for the triggers and all the things that is out there. It feels like we're just walking through a minefield. That's the word I was looking for, a minefield. It feels like a minefield culturally, right? I'm sure you feel that, particularly around this particular topic. And so, um, and we can get distracted. And, uh, but this, this really is a counseling session where, uh, Genesis, uh, where Jonah 4, where God sits down to talk. At, remember after the belly of the well, he's in the belly of the well and he takes him and puts him in Jonah chapter 2. God, he, Jonah does all the talking and praying, but here God talks to him. They're processing, and it's technically a, a counseling session, and it's really around racism. I mean, the question at the end of the book ends with, should I not have mercy? 
on Nineveh, a different race, a different ethnicity than you. And God's counseling him for that. So here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking if you can, um, the sensitivity, the hyperreactions going on around this particular topic now. What the goal this morning is for you and I, individually and as a church, to let ourselves be counseled by God. Can you just sit down and let him counsel you around this particular issue? Listen, he, there are a lot of things going on. Jonah had, he could have said, well, the Ninevites have done this to us, and we did that, and they did that. And there, there were a lot of issues. And what does God do? He brings him down and addresses him and his people and their hearts while all kinds of things were going on around it. Okay? So, I'm asking us to do that. And we're still, we're always overcoming racism in our hearts. And we'll see that more. But let me read a quote to you, just so you know that it's still an, uh, an issue. I'm going to read this quote. Read along with me. Most Christians throughout the rest, now this was during the civil rights, prior to the civil rights movement. Um, most Christians throughout the rest of the nation, this is a pastor, most Christians throughout the rest of the nation and world are shocked to hear that Negroes are turned away from white churches in the South. The ground for this is the assumption that the reason for the coming of the Negro to the church today is not worship, but rather to integrate and prove a point. So this is a white pastor saying they're not coming to worship, they're wanting to prove a point, right? That this is the case is shown by the fact that when offered segregated seating in the church, the Negroes refuse it. They insist that they should be allowed to enter and sit where they please. If they were to truly interested in worship, it would seem that they would be willing to sit in any section provided for them. It is hard to imagine Jesus exhibiting the spirit of the modern integrationists on this point. The fact is that Jesus taught a spirit of humility. He taught that one should take the lowest seat at the feast, and then if invited up to a higher, how much more than insisting on a higher and having to sit at a lower place. Do you see that? Do you see the twisting of the scriptures? plays the high ground that you should be humble and not following Jesus and Jesus of humble and be segregated as if they shouldn't look for the small seat or the lower seat. I mean, do you see the twisting of that? And I could go on about this particular quote, all right? It's within a long paper producing a magazine in the South. And you know who this guy is who said this? Dr. Morton Smith. You may not know who that is. He's one of the founders of our denomination. One of the six pillars who founded our denomination. About 50 years ago. If you don't think that we still don't have struggles and remnants. Now, I will say Dr. Smith eventually, after many years, repented of his kinsman theology that he taught and wrote. So, that's our heritage. You don't think it's there. We don't think it's there. Then we've got another thing to think about. Have we grown? Have we processed? Which, by the way, a few years ago, we did write our declaration from 2018 as a denomination repenting in our General Assembly of our racism during the Civil Rights Movement as a denomination. It has been a huge movement within our denomination. I won't leave you lingering there, but don't forget this, all right? This was us. So... 
Let me go back to say, so what today is, to look at this passage today, and just to look at Jonah, it's, it's not political, I'm not trying to make a political commentary today, um, it's not about quote-unquote white guilt, so you can put down your weapons to that, um, it's not to answer debates about statues and all kinds of things and the CRT and we've actually been addressing some of the, those things. We've been doing uh, things together as a church looking and trying to process those things. What is today? I want to remind you again this was a counseling session and where I think this text is it just finishes with God and a person and him counseling over this particular issue in his heart. All right so if you could allow yourself to sit in that posture today. Allow me. I want to sit in that. I've been sitting in it again all week to simply examine yourselves, us to examine ourselves no matter what's going on, no matter where we are in history, no matter how volatile or sensitive it is, I believe it's always a call of God's church to examine themselves, examine ourselves about all kinds of things and this particular struggle, okay? And um, that's ours. So we'll look at two things from our passage and really working through, uh, you know, I can't read the whole book of Jonah every time, so we'll refer to the whole part. But we'll be looking at this, the heart of racism and then the fruit of racism. The heart of racism, the fruit of racism. So let's pray. God, would you grant us some sort of humility and um, would you, I, I pray you would give us an extra measure of grace and strength um, to calm us, to remember that you're a compassionate God who deals with your people compassionately. And yet you oftentimes use scalpels to dissect and cut away things from our lives, our minds, our heart, even your denominations, your churches, so that we might know you, love you, display your glory more. So would you help us to do that? Would you speak to that, God? Would you give each of us, from the youth to the youngest, who are experiencing this topic all the time, uh, this word racism thrown up, as a flag all the time, but would you allow all of us to pause and just hear from you? Shape our minds, shape it, shape it theologically, shape it, shape it, uh, shape it practically. And uh, in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. So first, we'll just kind of see the heart of racism, and uh, and then we'll look at some of the fruits that's demonstrated in Jonah, some of the things that come from that. So let me give you my definition. Uh, of racism. I don't remember where I got this. I would give homage to that if I could. <laughs> so, uh, but this is one, maybe it's a combination of, the, of, of many and those I've read over the years. I think this may be from John Piper's book, Bloodlines, uh, which is a great book if you've never read that. But um, uh, attributing, what is the definition of racism? It's attributing to one race intrinsic superiority or valuing it above another than treating others as undesirable or evil. Right? So that's the definition, I think it is, particularly of racism. And um, so then the question is, where do we see this kind of in our story? Where, do we, where is this scene, where, where do you see the heart of it? And so it's a little bit of the fruit, but I'm also trying to give you to the heart of this kind of trace. How do we get to what the heart of racism really is? Where is it and how is it revealed, particularly uh, in our passage? Well, uh, how do we see it in our story? Well, we know what's there. Remember... <laughs> From the beginning, in chapter 1, which we didn't read this morning, but when God tells, tells uh, Jonah to go reach the Ninevites, he takes off running, right? We looked at that. He kept running away and away. And then he hides in a boat, even from the pagan non-Christians that were the, the fellow sailors. He's running from everybody 
uh, he can. So he runs away. He's upset. It actually takes a miracle of God to get him to even think about uh, reaching or loving, uh, moving towards this other uh, ethnic race, right, of the Ninevites, who are the Assyrians, and he's a Jew. And so it takes a miracle to even get him moved forward. So what is it around that? Well, then we'll also get to our chapter we looked at this morning in chapter 4. And you'll see here in the verse 4 verses that um, in the story, notice after we read, we read verse 10 at the end that God relented. And there was a huge movement of some sort of repentance in Nineveh, even from the king. And so it happened. And when Jonah finally went to speak to him, here's what his response was. He says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is what I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you'd be gracious, God, and merciful. I mean, you see that? He's like, I knew you'd be gracious. I've seen you be gracious all the time, even to the northern kingdom that I've been a prophet to, that I've been mad at. You've been gracious to them. And the reason he doesn't want to go is that I don't want you to be gracious to this people group. That's the definition of racism. I don't want you to have, I don't want, when God's mission and his love is limited, all of a sudden you're getting to the core of racism. That's what he was, and he was just mad. That word displeased there, literally it was an evil uh, to Jonah as a great wrong. It, it was in the category how it displeased him, think of evil and great wrong. And then say exceedingly, which exceedingly is used, uh, he's exceedingly happy after the Lord gives him a plant to cover him from the scorching heat. This word is used multiple times, but it's a word that means wealth and abundance would be in the Hebrew. All right, So he has a wealth of displeasure of this evil, that, that some evil wrong is happening. So uh, Joseph doesn't want him. That's what we see. That, and he would just assume die. His anger is so bad that he would just assume die. And God directly asked him, Right? So that's how angry he is. That's where we see it in the story. But how do you conclude? Well, you say, well, it's against, um, some have pushed back. Some commentators push back and say, um, he's just a prophet who, you know, loved God's people so much. He was just angry that somebody else would hurt them. And so, okay, but. The fact that you don't want the grace of God or the love of God to go outside your people group, no matter what you were defending, is the definition, whether passive or aggressive. All right? So he has, his actions are racist. Now, look, the passage then begins to lend itself, and I'll remind you of a couple of places. Notice um, here in chapter 1 where uh, he answers that he's an Hebrew. Um, See if it's there. Um, I don't have these two passages, but you'll see first in verse 2 uh, in chapter 4. I don't have it in my notes, so that's why I'm, I'm going to use it with you. Uh, but you see, where, where is this idea of a nationalism or racism? Where else is it in the text? One, his response about going to someone else. But then secondly, most commentators say as it comes out, notice in our passage this morning, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, this is not what I said when I was yet in my country. Most said, why would he bring that up to bear? He's trying to say country versus country. He's thinking of his nationalistic thoughts there. But then also, if you remember, when he was on the boat in chapter 1, uh, and they've cast lots, and the storm's coming, and these sailors basically have this huge storm, and they're nervous. They cast lots, and they come to him, and they ask him questions. And this is the sailors. They said, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. They're talking about the storm. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear um, 
the Lord and the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, notice that the last question they asked him was, where, where, what people are you? But the first thing he answers is his nationality. Now, Timur and a couple of um, commentators I like, uh, particularly a professor of, uh, at RTS in Jackson, he says that he's identifying as a Hebrew here was out of order with the questions and shows that his ethnicity was at the forefront. He was a nationalist. So, That's where we see it in the passage. So, but what is the heart of it? Okay? So what is the heart of racism? Which we've kind of addressed in our first couple of themes. But first thing you, you can see here, a couple of thoughts about the heart of racism or just racism in general here. Racism has always been around. All right? It's... There's racism here. Even the apostle Peter struggled for the gospel to go past the Jews to the Gentiles. He was rebuked by that, by Paul. Racism has existed in every culture ever since the fall. Um, and it's always been around. It's a massive, global, history-long, devastating, bloody, murderous problem that's always been a part of human history. For example, right, the Armenian genocide in Turkey in 1915. I'm just going to list a few. A million, a million slaughtered Armenians. The Holocaust in Germany, six million, right? Who knows about the tens of millions of Soviet gulags under Stalin? The massacre of Rwanda, 1994. The Japanese slaughter of six million Chinese, Indonesians, Koreans, Filipinos, and Indo-Chinese. And so history's littered with it, all right? And that's because humans are in rebellion against God. And it's always been around. But never, never, may I say never, and one, never take that reality to minimize what it's like to experience oppression and racism. Don't let that truth make you think, well, see, the black Americans are to grow up here in slavery. That's not, I mean, it's just always been around. Never speak of that in a way that minimizes. What we should conclude from the reality that Racism is prevalent and so evil around the world is that it should buckle our knees and say, therefore, it must mean that it's a part of us too. Oh my gosh, it's always been around and therefore it's here. And we've probably been a part of it or experiencing it somehow, somewhere. You see that? Never use that to minimize the experience of someone. Can you imagine going to the Holocaust and saying, oh, well, that's happened down in Rwanda. So it has been around. And racism is not the sin of all sins. It's not the only sin. It's not the only sin issue that's the struggle of our country. It's not the only sin issue, the struggle of our denomination. It's not the only sin. But it is a sin. And it's a sin that must be addressed. And that's why this morning we're addressing one of those. We're responding and looking at. But don't, it's that. It's a symptom of the core, deeper issue, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Go look at this. Um, it is a symptom of the rebellion of man against God. And here is what is at the core of racism. Remember, let's go back to the garden. In the garden, when Adam and Eve fall and fell into sin, were tempted by Satan, that was, a, that was a superiority complex. That's what the garden was. You could look at it that way. What did Satan do? First, he made them forget the goodness of God. 
Maybe God's withholding from you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you put that fruit there because he doesn't love you. Maybe you're not as valuable to him. So maybe God's not good. You lose the goodness of God. And then he offered a superior. He offered then he doesn't want you to be as superior as him. He wants you to feel inferior. It's a superiority complex. That's what they, they I want to be God. I want to be all-knowing. I want to be that, right? And from the fall, once we lose sight that God's good, then we think our opinion is, is, is utmost. And we, we begin to think that everything about us is the most right. That's what it produces. I must know better. That's what Jonah's done. Remember, he's lost sight that God is good. How could he ever be a good God and call me to be the Ninevites? And then what's his conclusion? I'm better than the Ninevites. That's what racism is, and that's really at the heart of it. It's a rebellion. It's a loss of the sight of the goodness of God. And then we attach ourselves to something other than God. And what did Jonah attach himself to? He attached himself to his nationality and his ethnicity. And it becomes most important. And when attacked, he becomes superior. That was, that was the fall. He, he, he begins to other people. I think that's what the academic world calls it, just to other people. That's what sin does to us. It makes us think that you're, it dehumanizes others or puts them lesser. It makes us think that we're superior. That was what offer uh, Satan did to Adam and Eve. And that's what sin does. If God's not good, then I must know what's good and what's right and what's righteous. And we begin to do that, right? That's why, like for, I look at someone and I say, well, that's just lazy. But if I'm lazy, I'm tired. I'm sure you can run through a whole list of the ways you think that way about so many things. And so because of the fall, and because it's been so prevalent, what is in, in A, in all fallen people, is a racist heart. We're all racist. That's what the fall has done to us. We lose sight of the goodness of God. We're not sure we have value or worth. We become self-absorbed. And then in order to feel good about ourselves, we have to put others down or make, them, make ourselves be better than them. Because I've lost sight that I might have any value or God is good in my worth. And so we move towards that. And so it does, when someone says, I'm just being more personal here, I'm not a racist. I, I cringe whenever I hear anybody say that, especially a Christian. It's just not true. Everybody's racist because everybody's fallen. It's just a matter of degrees. I pray that as our denomination, our degrees are getting better. But everybody, don't make that statement. You are. Start from that default. Because you're a son of Adam and Eve. And a daughter of Adam and Eve. That's who we are. I know what we mean, but we're, we are. I have a black son, and I'm a racist. I'm a repenting racist. Because in my heart, I have a superiority complex because I doubt the goodness of God. And sometimes it plays itself out in just small ways where that person's lazy and I'm tired. And he's other than that. Or I can change it, but I have a heart of superiority, which is what racism is. 
That's the heart of a racist. And we all have it. And um, we can, that's what he was dealing with. Now, one other thing here to say uh, about the heart of a racist is that I, Ed Clowney, theologian I like from Westminster, he, he, he said that in this particular book that God is speaking to Jonah, the individual, but he's also speaking to Israel corporately. He's not just speaking to the individual. That Jonah represents his people. And Jonah is a reflection of his people. And listen, um, this idea of being corporately guilty, you know, you may have heard me read that quote from Morton Smith and say, well, that was him. I wasn't there. But there is a corporate nature that we're connected to him, being white and being the PCA. And uh, that is a biblical principle. Um, one that we don't really understand in the West, but let me give you a couple of thoughts. One, you heard of the story of the sin of Achan. You remember that when God's people went in Joshua and they went into Joshua 7, they went in to conquer people and they, they couldn't and God had told them not to take any of the booty or the leftovers and the Achan came back and this one guy had disobeyed God and the whole nation struggled. And they actually got their tails whipped by the forget this country they were going into. I forget. But anyway, they, they, and so, and then God deals with him and his whole family dies because of his sin, right? And then the whole country struggled. Why? Because of that. Because he was a, it was a corporate nature. He was, what was it? Is that he was a reflection of the heart of God's people. And he was guilty as an individual. Now listen, you guys read that and we read that as Americans and Westerners and we go, no way. That's a crazy thing. It wasn't the other people's fault and theirs. They didn't have to suffer because of that. But you know what? Most other cultures in the world read stories like that in the Bible and they don't struggle with it. They get it because they think corporately. They don't think as individualistic as we do. And by the way, we don't, didn't all personally know Jesus Christ. He didn't die over and over and over and over for each individual. He died for us corporately. One died for all. And so we have a federal representation before God, federal representation that we have one who represents the whole. Our very sanctification and growth and forgiveness of sins is found in someone representing us on our behalf. And so when Adam fell, the sin of man was imputed to all of us. We all fell in Adam. We weren't there, but we corporately fell with him, and it's given to us. And the second Adam, Jesus, the only way you and I are made well is corporately we were saved by Jesus' one act. And therefore, the Bible thinks that way. We have a corporate nature of being saved. And so in a sense, we're corporately guilty. Like, we ought to weep over what Morton Smith said. I'm an ordained pastor in the PCA, and I ought to look at that and say, please forgive us, which I have done, and read things on behalf of that. Sin is individualistic. We all fail, and we have superiority complexes, but people make up cultures, and cultures make up people. They form them. And that was the heart of races. It was a reflection of his people. Most theologians said he was representing God's issues was with his whole people as a whole. No way the gospel could go outside of the Jews, right? It was only, he was only a God of the Jews. If that's the case, then we have no hope. I don't think I have Jewish descendant folks in here. Oh, I got one. I didn't know that, Pam. I used to have some. 
he brings that to him. The heart of a racist is a superiority, but it's really the heart of the fall, a lack of faith in God and what it produces in us. It has a corporate nature to it, and it's always been around, but it's always been around. Makes us, should make us conclude that we, um, we have it. And we were a country that exhibited it and still are repenting and changing from it. And not just our country, our church. And may God deal with us. May he continue to let us sit down and counsel us. So a few things is the fruit of racism, just to run through. What are some of the fruits of this that we see from our passage and from Jonah's life before we finish? Well, he was very angry. And racism and sin, and when you, when you, if nationalism and your race become your idol that you attach to for your identity and not being known by God, then whatever, whenever your idols are attacked, you get really, really angry. And he was exceedingly angry, right? I mean, he, he's pitching fits and said he would want to die three times. So, so he was anger. That's part of it. But another fruit of, right, of, of racism is that um, it is fair to ask the question, why was he angry? Was there any righteous anger in his anger, <laughs> if you will? And the answer is yes. I mean, the Ninevites had done horrible things to God's people, which we've talked about. From the crushing of the baby skulls in front of people to the burning of the youth in front of them. I mean, to call him not to be racist is a really hard hard call. And there was a righteousness to it. But what happens, um, some of the fruit of racism is that uh, our righteous arguments or some of the, the elements of our righteous anger oftentimes we use to justify our unrighteous anger. Sometimes we take our righteous things and we blend it and it clouds us and makes us not be able to see that we have some unrighteous anger too. Listen, God is aware of all the, all the things that Jonah wants him to make sure are just and right. God's aware of that, and yet he's still dealing with him and addressing his unrighteous anger that is that inside of the gospel, that he thinks he's better. Do you see that? Sometimes there are righteous things that are going on that you're like, hey, that's wrong, it's happening that way, and in the civil rights movement, that shouldn't have happened. Or some, but don't, there's some fears that people have, but don't lose sight of the, we as God's people, our job is to figure out where are our unrighteous angers and what are we angry about. So that's some of the fruit. Um, the point was his heart and how he viewed the others and what God was doing. Also, fruit of racism is that, uh, is that there was apathy and isolation. If you'll notice from the beginning in Jonah 1, he began to run and isolate himself. He, he fell asleep in the bottom of the boat. And in our passage this morning, at the very beginning, if you see there, uh, what did he do? After he preached and they repented, what did, not, what did Jonah do? He went off by himself and away from the city and built himself a little booth and sit under and got him a shade tree and went away from the people. He got isolated from them. He, he God saw God work, and he didn't celebrate. He didn't stay there and say, oh, I've learned some things. God's teaching me. What did he do? He moved away, and he isolated himself, and it created a lot of apathy. Apathy would be what would describe what he was the whole time. He didn't want to do anything about it. And listen, please don't let us be a church that becomes apathetic and wants to move away and build our own booths and have our own shade tree and not consider what it is that God is calling us to. 
But apathy is a fruit of racism, and it moves you away from people. And the majority, especially when you're a majority, and white people, when we're the majority, then you have the opportunity to move farther away than, than that of a minority. But a minority has to face a majority all the time. Our black brothers and sisters have to face it all the time. The white can move away. We can move away where we don't have to face things. And that is a fruit of racism, of apathy and isolation. When I went to college, I showed up at college. I had a lot of teammates. Many of you don't know this. The University of West Alabama, where I played football, is really in the deep south. It's 100 miles, 100 miles. It's, a, it's about 60 miles west, an hour's drive west of Selma, okay? So the deep, deep south. When I got there, there is a, and I would say this about Alabama, you feel like the difference between uh, eastern Kentucky and central Kentucky, you know, the I-75, there's differences in culture. North Alabama and South Alabama has that kind of difference in culture, particularly racially, I'll be honest with that. From Montgomery South, it's a different, different deal, or had felt that way for me growing up. Well, when I got to college, a number of my guys, I was an odd guy coming from North Alabama, a number of my teammates had multiple state championship rings. And I thought, oh, I almost had one of those. I played in the public school, big football and lost, whatever. You don't care about that, neither do I. But the point is they had a lot of rings and I didn't. They were state championships. But then I began to figure out they were from the deep south of Alabama. And when integration started, the whites all created private schools, most some called Christian schools, and had their own funds and their own monies and created the private school system. So in the south, Montgomery, most of that, uh, Will's parents live in Selma. I've verified that this is true. She grew up there, his mom. The whites had the resources to create their own school system, and so the schools may have had graduating classes of 10 because the population, Montgomery South, was predominantly the population majority black. And so do you see <laughs> that the resources that the whites had, and at least <laughs> at some level, it functioned just like Jonah. They were able to move away and not have to face it. And the state championships were, it was like 707 football. It wasn't that big a deal. I wasn't as impressed with their rings, but they had them. Do you see that? That's a fruit of what? And we have to see that we cannot become a church or a people or us personally where we move away. We, can, we have the ability to move away be isolated, not face things. And that's what Jonah did. And then there was a lot of ignorance that Jonah had, the fruit of racism, ignorance. He had no interest in learning about the Ninevites from God's position, the province of God, that God called him there. God is doing that. But he, um, he didn't really sit down or think about learning or <laughs> moving forward or ask, what is God? He, he thought, didn't think God was good. He was, had a superiority, a complex. He was fearful and angry. And he didn't want to learn what to do. And listen, we, we oftentimes, as God's church, we learn as Christians, we think about racism, particularly in our own country with our black brothers and sisters, and we speak from ignorance. And I would, I would ex exhort us as a church, which we've been trying to do, to, to speak from knowledge and learning. Have you ever sat down to ask the question to any of your black friends or what it's like to be, or even anybody that you don't know, which I've done numerous times, and just say, what is it like to be you with this going on right now in our culture? What do you feel about this particular event? Right now in the state of Alabama, in my own state capital, I'm picking on Alabama because y'all are sensitive about Kentucky, by the way, so I'm going to pick on Alabama. And um, in the state of Alabama, right now, if you walk up into the, into the uh, front of that capitol building, 
which I've done and seen, and to the right, you'll see a statue to the right of that. And the only, a, statue, a huge bronze statue to the right of the Capitol building as you walk up to it in Montgomery. That statue is of Dr. J. Marion Sims. He is the father of gynecology. Father of gynecology. Like we have the father of abdominal surgeries here, Ephraim McDowell. He's the father of gynecology. Bronze statue, that's a neat accomplishment. Until you learn the story that what Sims, Dr. Sims, did was that he performed multiple surgeries. How did he have all his cutting-edge learning about gynecology? You know what he did? His surgeries were on at least 10 slave women between 1846 and 1849. He performed, according to a New York story about Sims, his his statue there. Um, He basically rented and bought slaves for 20 years in Alabama in order to perform exploratory surgeries on them and figure it out. One woman then, one woman had over, was, was used over 30 times herself. Now, I'm not trying to get into the statue debate. What I, the ignorance, like, hey, you, you need to ask our brothers and sisters, how does that make you feel? I'm ignorant to think. I can draw my own conclusions. Let's not debate this. What does that do to you? Can I hear from you if you know that's true about that particular statue? Don't speak to our brothers and sisters from talking points, from news channels, who make their money by stirring the pot anyway. We must sit under the counsel of God and let him Deal with us under our own shade trees and let him point to our souls because this God is compassionate. He doesn't destroy Jonah. But we must sit there and not be ignorant and ask. And Jonah, some of the other fruits of of racism is fear. And he had a great, great fear. And I think, I mean, it was scary to go to a nation that was as powerful as Assyria. And I can, we can extrapolate that down. And I know there are fears in thinking about racism because there are a lot of things going on as a Christian that are scary right now in our culture. And the postmodern, and some of the lines, things that are going on sexually, I mean, there, there is, it is very, very different to be a Christian for my children than it was for me. So it's scary. But listen, we just sang a song that there is no rival to our God. We can lay down our fears and still let him address the sins that so easily tangle us. Even while we have fears around us of other things we are worried may happen. What are those things in your life? I'm worried that, that this is the truth is going to happen or this is going to... Just be like Jonah and let God put... He's God. He's got you. And hear from him on this particular struggle. And then lastly, one of the fruits of racism is a lack of stewardship. A lack of stewardship of resources and understanding. Our grace for the city is for us to be stewards of all the resources we have in order to alleviate, address this issue in our own hearts and to be a, reach our community. But think about what Jonah did at the end. He didn't think about all, using all of his knowledge and his wealth of knowledge of being a prophet walking with God how to benefit these new converts in Nineveh. He went out and got under a tree and looked at him from a distance and kept his resources to himself. 
a lack of stewardship. And listen, don't make the mistake of experiencing God's grace and think that therefore you have no issues. Because the story tells us that God was gracious and covered him with a shade tree. And it says, our pastor says that he was exceedingly happy that God covered him. But then the next day, God took a worm and let the worm eat the shade tree. And then let the scorching heat come on him. One of the mistakes that we make sometimes as the white church is that when we experience God's grace and his kindness towards us, that we think we must not have any issues. Look, he's graciously blessing me. He's taking care of me. That's because he's hyper-compassionate beyond belief, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. But don't conclude that you don't have areas of your life, and we don't as a church and we as individuals, particularly racism, that don't need to be addressed. One of the most common stories of pastors who wind up in scandal in the pulpit, one of the most common stories of being duped when you get in behind the scenes and talk to them is that they had a sermon go really, really well, and people said, I was learning so much and everything. And so they conclude, well, it must be okay for me to be having this affair with this woman because God's still blessing me. You laugh. That's what happens. That's the nature of sin. Just because God is gracious to us, which he is, does not mean that we still don't have much to be changed by. As a matter of fact, that compassion is far greater than we know. God is the better Jonah. We were of the race who he did have every right to destroy, and he didn't. And those of us who were aliens and far off, he brought near, and he loved us. He was the far better Jonah. So let's pray. Father, would you um, help us to, uh, as we finish this morning, would you grant us Would you grant us the application, which I failed to mention, but would you grant us the application as individuals that we could sit under your counsel? And would you grant us the application as as a church that we could sit under your counsel? And would you not let us be distracted by the volatile political things and the and our own fears and the insecurities and the anger and all that. Would you work through all that, God, and graciously deal with us? But help us to repent. Help us. There's so much to learn. One sermon could never address the complexity and the breadth and the height of what racism does. And I'm thankful, God, that you in history have raised up men who became voices to speak against the injustices like MLK was and many others from Abernathy to all the brothers of of the civil rights movement your church needed to hear from you and we we still need to 
So um, we're thankful and praise you of how compassionate you are to us racists. And you are good and kind. We praise you for that. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.